When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the front and discuss the ongoing impact of the war on Ukrainian businesses, small and large, as they battle to stay open under the threat of strikes, energy blackouts and winter. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 1st of December, day 281. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, and from the Transatlantic Dialogue Centre, based in Kyiv, analyst Alina Hobenko, and programmes coordinator, Darina Sidorenko. Dom Nichols, can I start with you? Uh, what's the latest from Ukraine? Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been uh, mainly artillery in the last uh, last 24 hours. So uh, in the central region around uh, Donetsk, um, there's been a lot of shelling uh, in that in that area. Also in the city of uh, Hezon to the south that uh, Russia uh, left a couple of weeks ago, crossed the river and and pulled out. Um, Hezon's lost its power. Heavy shelling um, overnight, the, the regional governor said this morning, and uh, Hezon is now, uh, well, it's, it, for weeks now, has been without running water, electricity, partly gained its electricity again last week. Um, but uh, we think that is now that is now off. So um, Ukrainian forces and government officials been trying to get civilians out of the city. I think that effort is continuing and, and looks like it, it needs to continue because Russia, as they can do, Nothing else. They are continuing to bombard it from from across uh, across the river. Um, elsewhere, Anthony Blinken, U.S. Uh, Secretary of State, he's been speaking at the NATO Foreign Ministers Summit, and he said that um, as Ukraine, this is a quote from him, as Ukraine continues to seize the momentum on the battlefield, President Putin has focused his ire and fire on the Ukrainian civilian population. Um, so Mr. Blinken says that one third of Ukraine's energy system has been destroyed over the last few weeks. And he says heat, water and electricity for children, the elderly and the sick. These are now Putin's new targets. He describes this as barbaric. So making the right the right noises in the right place, um, that momentum needs to needs to continue, I feel. And the momentum does 
does continue to a certain extent. Narendra Modi, um, Prime Minister of India, he's writing today in in the Telegraph. You can have a look at it. Uh, have a look at it online. He's about to take over as presidency of the G20. So he's um, he's talking about the humanitarian crises that are being thrown up in the world. He doesn't name Russia, but I think it's fairly obvious what he's what he's talking about. Um, he's saying uh, he, he's saying, "quote Our era need not be one of war. Indeed, it must not be one." So there you go. I think it's fairly clear what he's uh, what he's talking about. You'll remember a few weeks ago. Um, Back in September, there was the the meeting in Uzbekistan where he was seen to distance himself somewhat from Putin. At the time, he said uh, he said that the, the, that now is not the time for war, and that was okay, a fairly mild statement, but actually quite significant. Bearing in mind the position India is in, that tries to that is trying to find its way between um, between Russia, with whom it has a great business relationship particularly on the defense side uh, and the west and india is obviously a major major regional power major world power um so interesting that that mr modi made those statements back in back in september and he's backing it up today um in as he was about to take on the the uh, the presidency of the g20 so you know interesting moves on the diplomatic front just one other thing i will mention before i go of no i thought this was interesting you know how much what, what does this mean? I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts, uh, everyone, on this. But the Pentagon, U.S. Uh, Defense Department, has awarded Raytheon Technology, big big arms manufacturer, a $1.2 billion contract for six NASAMs, the uh, the very good surface air missile systems, national, national advanced surface air missile system, I think. Um, but six NASAMs for Ukraine. So interesting that this contract has been laid for new systems for Ukraine with the work estimated to be completed in November 2025. So, I mean, that's a fairly bold statement, I think, by the Pentagon that they see Ukraine um, surviving and thriving this war and uh, that not, not only will they, will they continue to be there in 2025, that Russia will not have, have won the war and subjugated the, the country, but also that... Uh, so in a little over two years' time, in fact, sorry, a little under two years' time, do my maths. Um, now Ukraine will have six of the uh, of the world's best surface-to-air missile air defence systems. So I think that's quite a bold statement there by by the Pentagon. It shows that they are taking the long view. As I've said many times before, the, the the tactical, as in the short-term efforts right now for weapons and aid and electricity and political support, is all is all good. And needs to continue, but I was—I I have been hoping. Um, you would have heard me say, of late, I've been hoping that there have been some more statements of a longer term, a more enduring nature from our, our leaders. I thought there was a good start by Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister of Britain, the other day, talking the, the, the long-term um, support for Ukraine when he was in Kiev, actually meeting President Zelensky. And now this—this this is um, this announcement today, backed up by the statements by Anthony Blinken at NATO. I think it's just interesting that it's now the, the diplomatic front is 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 throwing its gaze out and talking about the future and talking about a. A well, if not a post-Putin future, but then a, a post-war future with a sovereign, independent, economically viable Ukraine state still in existence. So, um, yeah, I thought that was that was an interesting one, but but maybe I'm reading too much into it. I don't think don't, don't know if I am, but uh, I'd be willing to take any views on that. And uh, yeah, I need to take a little breather there. 
Well, thanks very much uh, for that, Dom. And thank you, Dom, uh, for, for racing to the office. You've just got back from a, a trip to Italy with the Defence Secretary. So do tell us a little bit about that later if you'd like. Dom, I know you've got further notes on a big Rusi report which has come out in the last few days, which is absolutely fascinating. But I'd like to, at this point, bring in our guests, Alina and Darina, um, analyst Alina Hobenko and programmes coordinator Darina Sidorenko from the Transatlantic Dialogue Centre. Thank you. Thank you both of you so much for joining us. Um, before we talk about your, your paper on business and, and, and the economy in Ukraine and how it's been affected by the recent strikes and the war uh, and the invasion, um, could you tell us just a little bit about yourselves? Uh, where, where are you from? And tell us about, about, a little bit about your life prior to and then after the full-scale invasion in, in February 2022. Hello, David and Dominic. A really big honor to be here with you. Uh, well, my name is Darina Sidorenko. Hello, everybody. And before the war, I was uh, an ordinary young um, adult woman living in Kiev, living and working here. I was working in one of the embassies here with the uh, press and uh, information. And um, uh, when the war started, I've just uh, got some refugee experience. And when I came back, I've joined the TDC team here, when uh, where I assist uh, with um, assist our teams in different assignments they have and try to coordinate them between each other. Uh, that's what I do. And Alina, what about you? Uh, yeah, hello everyone. Thank you for your invitation. I'm really glad to be here right now. Uh, I'm an analyst at Transatlantic Dialog Center. Yeah, and I live in Kiev, Ukraine's capital. So I experienced the full-scale invasion from its very beginning to a large extent. So I still remember the first day of invasion when I heard uh, my relatives talking on the phone uh, with my mom. And it was the moment when I understood something was going wrong, like who calls so early at 6 a.m. Yeah. And before the full scale invasion, all my thoughts were around uh, around minor stuff like studying as I'm still a student. And I had a lot of ideas and plans to be accomplished in this new 2022, as we call it. Uh, yeah, but uh, when my purposes in life made a U-turn, my priorities shifted completely, like life became priority. And the first question which now comes to my mind in the morning is like, what happened during the night? And to be honest, due to war, it's almost impossible to work or study with high productivity and to think about anything else except from the news. But with the escalation, I started to consider how can I assist my country? So I commenced writing different pieces like that about Ukrainian business and conditions of blackouts so the world can understand what's going on now in Ukraine. Well thank you very much Alina and Irina for, for that. Well let's start. Can you summarize for us the impact of the invasion on the Ukrainian economy and Ukrainian uh, business? Uh, Alina why didn't you take this? Uh, yeah, of course. So invasion deeply undermined Ukrainian economy. It's true. Our businesses were affected due to the occupation of certain territories of large enterprises like uh, Zaporizhia, Donetsk region are great examples of this. The destruction of infrastructure, disruption of technological supply chains, the labor force outflow and many other things. And before the October shelling, the drop in GDP was about 30%. However, since October, Russia has been carrying out extremely massive attacks on our energy infrastructure so ukraine's gdp drop would be even higher like 20 like 
39%. Yeah, and while doing my research, I came across some interesting figures, like on October 10th, the first day of mass attacks on the infrastructure, the income of Ukrainian establishments fell by 22%, and in Kiev, in the capital, by 27%, compared to the same day of the previous week. And according to European Business Association, which is the largest business community in Ukraine, and which encompasses about a thousand Ukrainian and international companies, so they reported that 47 of this their companies were affected due to the war and the total loss as of 21st of October was more than 437 and 5 million euros. Well, those are some quite astounding numbers. Thank you, Alina. Darina, can I turn to you? How has your working life changed uh, and been impacted? How, how have you been forced to change what you do in, in your everyday? Well, I'm one of the lucky ones whose office is uh, evading auditors due to its very special location. Uh, you know, we are standing just amidst the government institutions in the government district, so for sure we didn't, we uh, do not have auditors at all. Just uh, as all like critical things are very close to us. Nevertheless, uh, my home, for example, is not in such part of the city, so I just stay longer hours uh, on my job. I'm in office for like 10 hours a day for example just because I know that when I come home I will lose either signal connection like mobile connection uh, is going to be out and I'm going to be cut off uh, of the world just uh, uh, so that is the main change uh, in my curriculum I would also say that I think less about my leisure my entertainment is out of question currently just because even if I have a little bit of time um, I am thinking uh, whether this place works at all does it have generator and it is for example in other part of the city and i do not want to go there and uh, spend so much time out like uh, just uh, commuting for example so for sure it uh, uh, the main change is uh, on the hours thanks Darina. elena have you have you experienced the same sort of thing anything to add to that uh, yeah, of course I can add. So uh, when we're talking about uh, water that was switched off uh, previous week, so our office and my colleagues uh, in particular had to collect snow so we would have water for technical purposes. So really the situation is really catastrophic. Thanks, Alina and Darina. Um, can I ask, so we, we, you've, you've given us some, as, as, as I said, some astounding numbers about the, the drop in GDP, the drop in uh, intake of, um, of the money on the first day of the, the, the strikes in October. Um, could you talk us through how companies have been responding to these strikes and, and also the impending winter? Well, sorry, not, not even impending, the winter that's, that's now arrived. Uh, yeah, of course. So Ukrainian enterprises were forced to shift their operation and working life of their employees. Like, uh, according to that European Business Association, 44 of their numbers are now f- working in full, while just in July, the percentage of working fully was much higher, like 50%. So a clear decrease in business activity and um, change of employment structure is obser- are, are observed. And it was interesting, almost a third of Ukrainian businesses have closed their part of their offices trade points or departments and almost a quarter have turned their offline activities into online mode and yet the businesses understand that coming winter challenges are really terrifying thus companies are preparing for supply interruptions of water of gas electricity and of course for problems with communication and internet connections Darina would you like to add anything to that uh, well in general I would say that um, companies just they are gonna 
adapt more and they are uh, searching ways for that, especially those that, uh, you know, rely on electricity the most, like IT companies. They are just uh, not trying only to bring generators, the, the most forward-looking did that before, uh, but they try to relocate their offices massively, especially those that have resources for that. We have um, those uh, examples uh, of uh, the whole offices just going to leave going to uh, mountains something you, you, you've both mentioned a lot of a lot of numbers here so can we talk a little bit about um, the finance and uh, so as, as well as work plans practical measures what financial measures have Ukrainian businesses taken been forced to take in, um, at, at this time uh, yeah of course so the uh, Ukrainian businesses have significantly increased financial reserves since March for example so it was some kind of a strategy to preserve our business activity so although the number of companies lacking that financial reserves also increased so now it's up to five percent in October compared to just two percent in July uh, our business is trying to elaborate any kind of strategies so that employees will be here with us and not just go away but unfortunately uh, a lot of strategies are mm, not uh, uh, adapting enough so the situation is now worsening but but uh, nevertheless we hope that the situation will will improve as uh, for example in november the business activity became uh, to grow up compared to october Something, something you wrote in your excellent piece on, on Ukrainian business. I'm just going to quote from it quickly. It's quite a long quote, so bear with me. Uh, open quote. Generally, business income is highly dependent on air alarms and electricity. Therefore, the scheme is simple. The further the business is located from the front line and critical infrastructure facilities, the better. That's why, for example, the revenue of Lviv or Dnipro cafes suffered less during the autumn shelling than those of Kiev. Can you talk us through how businesses are dealing with with that proximity to the front? You know, relocation, adaptation. Um, Alina, do you want to take this, and we'll just try and bring in Darina afterwards. Uh, no, I can try. Uh, I can answer this question, of course. So uh, mostly such businesses are relocating. Yeah, it's true, unfortunately. And as I said, some of them have closed their offices in some extremely dangerous areas. But uh, fortunately, they constantly kept a bre- keep abreast. So when Kherson was liberated, Ukrainian supermarket networks rushed immediately to reopen their spots. Like there was even a viral video spread am- uh, among social media where a supermarket truck was entering Kherson just an hour after the news about its liberation was published. Uh, yeah, and meanwhile, some frontline businesses are moving the operation to the basement if they have such an opportunity, of course. Like, basement is some kind of shelter as it is in the ground and do not have any windows. So, loft cafes have become even more popular than ever before. And what's more, uh, small shops on the frontline villages where Ukrainian troops are located are now thriving. Like, uh, the owners say they have never seen before so, man- so many people. And there are some really eye-catching um, examples of this. I mean, you talk to us a little bit about the sort of special salad dinners that, that restaurants are, are, are putting on their menus and, and also a little bit about how candlelight is becoming normal for, di- for, for dining. Can you talk us through some, some more case studies from how individual businesses are adapting? 
So let's just start that not just individual businesses have problems with it. Let's talk about people. Like people are eating salads all the time, eating eating sandwiches. A lots of people had to just buy uh, those little gas, uh, like transportable gas stoves and transportable uh, gas like um, bottles, and uh, that's what people and families are using massively. Just because if you were here in Kiev, you remember that here we have lots of high-rise buildings and they just uh, cannot um, uh, have gas in those buildings. It's just dangerous. So for sure, lots of people just uh, are relying on those little things uh, to keep them going. Uh, what uh, do we say about businesses? Well, Ukraine is like massively digitalized country. We have changed to um, internet menus and now like uh, during my last visits to bars and uh, some restaurants I saw that uh, the paper ones are back uh, just because uh, you when the power outage is coming you cannot not only pay in card and you you have to pay in cash but you also just cannot see what this place has. The waiters they have to retail all the menus so we are just checking how ready they are uh, literally so uh, candles are quite amazing i have to say even at home and uh, you can find them even in some very unexpected places not just in restaurants but in gyms even so one of my friends goes to one uh, when you have yoga with candles it's amazing but when you have something more um, active well it's starting to be weird and can i ask just quickly how um how are schools affected and what, what are schools having to do at the moment yeah i can get this one so educational sphere really came under fire uh, as well like for freelance teachers the situation is like this when during a lesson the lights switch off the lesson is over it's not paid and time is wasted so of course regulated blackouts uh, would simplify the situation but new barrages of russian missile strikes lead to new emergency shutdowns some schools and educational centers were more ready for blackouts that's true for example uh, for example those who bought lighters long before the october were not knocked out of work. Like teachers now record their lessons and pupils listen to them later. And this is the solution. And still, of course, lack of internet does not allow children to study effectively. But what's interesting for pupils themselves, it's rather a pleasant experience, like studying under candlelight sounds funny to them. Some are almost obsessed with these candles, although, of course, parents are dissatisfied as candlelight may may lead to poor eyesight. I would just add a little bit of that just because my mother is a teacher and I had a phone call uh, to her this morning just to ask about everything and she said that the biggest challenge is not just for the children but for the teachers is they have double load. They are working remotely and offline when the daylight uh, just gives you that opportunity and this is the worst thing actually. They are working more um, like from 7 for example, from 8 uh, a.m. till uh, even 10 p.m. just because some children when you're like learning remotely some things are unclear so for sure um, that's uh, the time for them to ask something additional so the working hours are also crazy well that was actually thank you very much uh, Darina that was actually going to be my next question I mean we 
the 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 fact that you don't know necessarily when your internet will be on, when the heating will be on, when lights will will turn on, must have a huge impact on your working schedule. So, you, 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 Darina, you mentioned um, the impact on schools, but Alina, would you talk us through potentially how it's affected other people? How how, how have you seen uh, the the fact that energy is affecting working schedules pan out across the across the labour market? Yeah, sure. So working patterns change drastically, and it's true. People are to work multiple shifts, like including night ones and weekends, that is, whenever the light is on. We have to adjust our internal clock to schedules of light cuts. So often we work not when we want to or when we're supposed to, like from 9 to 6, for instance. No, we have to work when we physically can, so when we have the light and electricity. And this often leads to lower salaries as we count that the light goes out uh, two or three times for four hours, and that is about two or four working hours per day. And workers have to find a place with internet so that uh, not to lose their money. Well, just one more question from me. I know Dom, Dom has been listening to all of this and has, and has some questions as well, um, if you don't mind at all. My final question is, there was a line in your report that really stood out, I thought, and it's such an obvious point, but, but one I don't think is, is often considered sometimes. Um, you write, quote, not everyone can quickly switch to alternative energy sources. This is such an important point. Can, can you talk us through why not? And, and again, how, how are people and businesses being forced uh, to adapt to, 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 to that horrible reality? Well, uh, I think the biggest uh, challenge is for the small businesses in here, just because uh, it is just too expensive for them. Let's talk about the prices for the generators. It's like $2,000 to take one, to take really good one. It's also about uh, transportation of this generator, about you need to find some space. In Ukraine, small businesses are really small. Like It's a small, um, I don't know, garage, piece of, uh, I don't know how to describe but it's kind of just a little room and for example putting the generator there is just a suicidal attempt to uh, to save your business uh, so what else do we need we need fuel and to refuel the generator is in one month it's going to cost you around 300 dollars so uh, everything adds up and you have like huge sum of money for somebody uh, who has the business in the times of war so you will basically do not have any uh, spare um, money to invest into this business. So what do we have? Uh, like, what, how can we deal with that? Probably with some kind of loan, but loans are just uh, for some equipment that will be unnecessary in, for example, just um, uh, several months. It's a huge investment for the small business. So some of them, they just cannot, uh, they uh, cannot uh, change uh, and go to for alternatives. Alina, would you like to add anything to that? Uh, yeah, just a thing that uh, taking a loan, for, for instance, it's uh, a rather risky decision uh, and, uh, because of two reasons. Firstly, it will be quite difficult to pay the loan plus the interest rate under a sales drop. And secondly, of course, if the blackouts are over, and I hope so, they will be over, a business will have to pay off the loan for already unnecessary equipment. And that's the reason why many people uh, refuse to take any loan. Well, thank you very much, uh, Darina and Alina, for, for that. I thought that was fascinating. You've really taken us inside some of the decision-making processes that, unfortunately and horrifically, Ukrainian business, businesses are being forced to consider. Um, Dom Nichols, you've been listening to this. Do you have any questions for Darina and Alina? I do, I do. Um, Alina, Dasha, hi. Um, lovely to speak to you. Dasha, lovely to speak to you again. Um, and please, I hope uh, I hope you're somewhere safe. I hope these the in and outs on your internet connection aren't because of the uh, the airstrikes that you're... 
Uh, well, yeah, radio under at the moment. Um, I'd be really interested. What, what do you think the impact has been um, on the, the business community, on the working environment, and indeed education of the the huge number of women who have left the country uh, with with well with and without children? But you know, the the, the men have, have largely been um, uh, between certain ages. If you could remind me of the ages, I'd be, be keen. Eighteen to fifty-five, I think. But the men are staying in the country. But but a lot of women have left. I just wonder what the impact that has, that has led to on business and um, work and education in general. Uh, one information, one piece of information that I really remember about that is quite surprising that uh, the number of uh, small businesses opened in uh, the last uh, three months, I guess, in Ukraine, they actually belong to women. So um, we still see that even though huge amounts, like huge numbers of women have left, lots of people from which are uh, internally displaced, they are trying and take a risk on uh, the territories which are which weren't conquered or attacked or were liberated. So they continue going. It's uh, amazing for me. I, and uh, I knew that migrants, for example, the people that migrate to other countries from uh, conflict zones, that are they are usually taking more risks in business and opening new uh, things. But uh, that uh, information, uh, seeing this in Ukraine during a wartime, that's not just a surprise. I uh, was shocked. And yeah, I can also add that meanwhile, the importance of occupations connected with providing food production and uh, like cooking food are extremely relevant now. So and it was interesting, women led about more than half of such businesses nowadays. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you. I really had no idea it was that that, that kind of proportion. Um, the next question is about yeah, you've mentioned um, Ukraine is a very, very digitalized country. Um but how secure is the uh, is the industry or is the uh, is the practice of of having an online economy? How resilient is it as well? And and is it the same culture across the entire country? And I, and I wonder if the war is accelerating change these changes in practice, adopting online practices much much more than you might otherwise have done had you not been invaded since February twenty fourth. Do you think the whole country will move and and make these adjustments at the same pace? Thanks. I would say that the development of uh, digital um, of digital component in businesses was actually quite. Uh, uh, not different, but like the same around the, around Ukraine. Uh, businesses in both in both Kharkiv and Lviv, they would have the same uh, culture as in Kherson and uh, Kiev. So, um, what about acceleration? I think Ukraine is is usually on the forefront of digitalization. Our uh, b- business uh, people, they just when they found find something new and they see that it can cost less, it can bring more uh, sales, they do that. I've seen people which are in which are on the markets for 30 years and they have while they are on the market uh, like the usual physical one I mean uh, so uh, they still have their online shops on different platforms so they are not missing away I would say they are not missing out I'm sorry so uh, I would uh, I would rather be positive about that that it will uh, not just accelerate i do not know how how to accelerate even more (laughs) to be honest how to be even more digitalized at this point but for sure um 
the challenges which are currently uh, coming with online sales are real. Nevertheless, uh, that's the only thing that people are left with. Um, that's it. Yeah, I also agree with Dorina on that point. So as for security, we try in our state, of course, trying to strengthen it even more as we can. And uh, we have such an app as DIA. So it's an extremely useful tool for entrepreneurs, both Ukrainian and international. So you can launch a company just in a few clicks. And it's not an advertisement. It's uh, just a real practice. So I believe that our business environment is extremely uh, plausible for international businesses, even in such harsh conditions. Thank you. Just one final one, if I may, just on that business environment, what what feel are you getting from business people about their planning horizons? Are they are they thinking in the very short term uh, and just sort of trying trying to get get by for now, or are they able to 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 make longer term decisions, perhaps make investments for the future? Um, I mentioned at the start about how how, how you know, the US has just laid that contract with Raytheon out to twenty twenty five, so they're they're starting to take a, a much longer view. Are you experiencing that amongst the um, the, the business fraternity inside Ukraine? I would say that small businesses are kind of uh, how I will get by just because the investments that are going with the generators and so on are already huge. Uh, but about this, the big businesses, I feel that it's a kind of strategy after all. So uh, they are thinking about the future a lot and uh, how to keep up as people here. Um, they are intending to work even more like uh, nobody is um, uh, I would say uh, nobody is complaining it, it was surprising for me when I was um, in a little bit depressive mental state just because of the uh, outages just because I, I understood the uh, how big the outages are the whole country was out uh, of electricity so but when I was in the subway and uh, huge amounts of people were near they were we are ready I mean, they do not have to, but they are ready. What about the people whose uh, salaries depend on that? 100%. Maybe Alina has something to add. Yeah, so they are re- they were ready for these uh, conditions. Of course, they hope that it would be a much better situation. But nevertheless, uh, when we ask them whether they're going to leave or to flee in a few days uh, in the near future, they just refused uh, very categorically. So they said that they understood that from the very beginning, this war was gonna was going to be not a quick one and we need to win uh, no matter what and they understood that they would have to adapt uh, uh, no by any means like by buying generators even very high prices uh, that's okay so they understood and they keep uh, uh, investing uh, especially, yeah, large businesses, of course. But for small businesses, it's a tough decision. And uh, it's true that some small businesses just uh, broke. Well, thanks, Tom, for your questions. I've just got um, one more from me. How, how do you think, well, no, let's turn the question around slightly. Um, what do you think the state of the Ukrainian labor market is at, is at the moment? What, what does it look like for people uh, getting jobs, leaving jobs? Uh, what's the sort of su- supply and demand uh, for, for those roles? What, what do you see when you look at the, the labor market at the moment? Yeah, when we look at the domestic labor market at the moment, so we can observe it slowing down 
of course. So, for example, in October, the increase in number of vacancies proposed to Ukrainian labor market was about uh, 0.3% comparing to the previous months. And like in September, the increase was 16% and in August, 20%. And this nevertheless indicates an activity drop in the labor market. And although on the one hand, the demand for online employment slightly fell because many employees just cannot work adequately due to the lack of electricity, on the other hand, blackouts would not make workers prefer offline over online as the latter option is still more mobile and safe. Like during blackout, online workers can go to some cafes or co-working spaces, which uh, became extremely popular, by the way, uh, while offline workers are just stuck in their workplace. And what's interesting, the job offer for um, IT has significantly decreased during this period. Like it's uh, understandable as online work became in question. Thanks very much, Alina and Darina. Um, is there anything you haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to hear? I think uh, that's more about mental state of people that I would like to add. As I've mentioned, when uh, the biggest outage happened, I was in a depressive mood just because when I came back to my what is called bedroom district, where most of the people live, like 300,000 people live in my bedroom district, so-called. And when I came back there and uh, saw that it's just super dark, I was... um, I was not just in a bad mood, I was uh, crushed. Uh, What about other people? Uh, In many podcasts you had, especially the one that you had uh, after coming back from Ukraine, you were told that Ukrainian people are super resilient, like we have air raid sirens and nobody's kind of rushing away, nobody's uh, super... um, I don't know, stressed about that. Everybody's just doing what uh, is planned for them, right? Go to the bomb shelter or wh- wherever they are safe. So what about this thing with autages? Um People are resilient just because they have certain routines. Any psychologist would tell you that during the war, you have some kind of a, um, consequences of things you do that keeps you up. So uh, in uh, this very example we see that our routine is lost and many people feel lost too so that is why for example in Kiev the situation is uh, I think one of the worst ones so people are leaving for another uh, cities in the country or just leaving the country in general but in other parts I think this situation is not such you just do not feel such scales so um Mainly, people of Ukraine are still resilient as they were. Alina, would you like to anything add anything on the uh, the mental health aspect of this? It's it's very important and definitely something we should talk more about. Uh, yeah, of course. So uh, personally, I'm really frustrated when I just can't control my life. I can't control uh, what is going on. And it's really extremely difficult for your mental health, for your job, for your work, for all spheres of your life. And uh, like a great example of how Ukrainians like uh, changed during this time was uh, Black Friday. That was recently like uh, the most popular things Ukrainians bought on Black Friday were not clothes or furniture as usual, but generators, battery, power stations, power banks and candles. So this is our our reality and we have to adapt to it. 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Alina and Darina, for joining us. This has been fascinating and quite sobering to hear of all the challenges and issues faced by Ukrainian business over the past few months and looking ahead uh, to the next few months, of course, and, and, and even further ahead. Uh, thank you, Dom, for your questions as well. Uh, Dom, can I just turn to you before we before we wrap up and go to our very final thoughts? Uh, there's been a very large uh, report from Rusi that's been released about the invasion. Uh, you've been reading some of it. You made some notes. Can you talk us through them? Yeah, sure. I'll dash through these, but I would... Um recommend people go and have a look at the Rusi website to get the to get the full the full ish there because I'm only going to scratch the surface but this is well it's titled preliminary lessons in conventional war fighting from Russia's invasion of Ukraine February to July 2022 the authors hope to do um, an updated one in due course but this is just for the first few months of this phase of the uh, of the uh, invasion but what they what they're saying is that, that Russia um, plan to invade Ukraine over a 10-day period and then sort of occupy the whole whole country to enable annexation by by August 2022 and the plan was built on speed and the use of deception to keep um, Ukrainian forces away from the capital um, to ensure that they could rapidly uh, seize the, the you know, major political centre and business centre. Um, they were going to, they had a list of what they were going to do to, to a number of people and for President Zelensky and the and the sort of the, the political leadership, they were going to be killed. Um, others were going to be locked up and, uh, and others subjugated and so on and so forth. Um, now, Rusi, Rusi assessed that the deception plan largely succeeded and at, at, the, at its peak, Russia achieved a 12 to 1 force ratio in that battle north of Kiev. However, the very tight security around the mission that, that allowed a measure of successful deception also led to Russian forces being unprepared at the tactical level, not only to to enact that plan. They're saying that tactical commanders, the, the lowest level of commanders, only only had hours um, to, to know that this, this invasion was going to happen. But also, so not only to react to the plan, but they had no way of reacting when the when the plan went wrong, and the Rusi is saying that the greatest deficiency was this lack of, um, well, they call it reversionary courses of action, i.e., having having something else up your sleeve when it's when it's all going badly wrong, um, and as a as a result, when sp- speed didn't work, um, Russian forces were largely well, had to go static because they didn't know what to do, and then. The Ukrainian forces were mobilized or, or increased their their rate of mobilization and managed to to hang on. Basically, is what they're saying in the first the first few days, and then start to uh, start to push on. Now they're saying that despite all this, um, Russia then, as we know, sort of refocused on the Donbass and Ukrainian ammunition supply had been very seriously depleted. Um, and it was the determination rather than the capability of Ukrainian troops that, that enabled them to hang on. That's, that's Rus's assessment because they, um, you know, the ammunition stocks were so low. However, they're saying that from April, um, the West became Ukraine's strategic depth and the supply um, of, of long-range artillery missile systems like the multiple launch rocket systems, HIMARS, etc., um, brought or increasingly brought Russian logistics under threat and then sort of shifted that that initiative um although it was never it, i mean this obviously as we, we remember this took this took weeks and they're saying that russian weapon systems were effective as in they 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 largely worked even though we think their um, equipment maintenance is quite poor most things worked as they should do now where they were targeted where they were aimed that's uh as we've discussed many times that was 
horrific and mostly aimed at the civilian population. But the the munitions worked, and the units uh, that had a higher experience um, did did better, even though there are, as we know, huge deficiencies in training. But uh, Rusi is saying there is a, a culture of reinforcing failure in the Russian military unless orders are changed at the higher levels. We know that they don't trust their subordinate commanders and unless the uh, the big guy at the top um, changes his mind, then they're going to stick with that plan, even if it's even if it's not working. And therefore, they're saying Russians are culturally vulnerable to deception because they lack the ability to to rapidly take in um, different pieces of information, especially if that information is is changing. And they're also culturally averse to. Um, providing those decision makers who are generally quite far up the chain with the wider context, again, especially in a, in a highly fluid environment where that context is changing in order for them to exercise their judgment. So it, it just incentivizes a dishonest reporting culture, i.e. they're just saying everything's going fine and they're, and they're making fantastic advances when it's, it's clearly not. So they can't, even though the, the whole system is slowed down by having to push decisions upwards, they, they can't even, they don't have the right information upon which to base decisions in the first place, um, they also they go on to say that Russia's capabilities and formations were prone to fratricide, i.e., but blanking each other out. So electronic warfare systems and other other capabilities were rarely uh, sort of worked together. So sometimes, literally, they were they were working on the same radio frequency and blanking each other out. Um, processes for identifying friend friend from foe. Remember, a lot of the equipment, air force and ground equipment, were was the same as former Soviet equipment. So so you need some way of telling who's who we see it on the soldiers they wear they wear the different colored um tape and uh and what have you around their around their arms and legs and, and the top of their helmet so you know the, the same sort of thing just wasn't happening and these these um there were no control measures in place to to make sure that that once that that they were not attacking their own people so what that meant was that, that even though they had a lot of stuff and a lot of different bits and pieces and a lot of capabilities where these should have been magnifying, the, the, the sum should have been greater than the, the, or the whole should have been greater than some of the parts. It actually it, it degraded them because they were they were attacking each other or attacking themselves across many of the um, the natures of equipment that they were using. So the lessons, very quickly, just to finish off, they're, they're saying there's a number of lessons here. Firstly, there is no sanctuary in modern warfare. They're saying you have to assume that the enemy can strike anywhere at, at any time and survivability depends on dispersal. So dispersing ammunition stocks, dispersing your headquarters, maintenance areas, aircraft, etc., etc. Now, they're saying Ukraine successfully um, managed to survive Russia's initial wave of strikes by spreading out its its air defences, its aircraft, its, its weapons and, and what have you. And therefore, they're assessing that, that Russia engaged... Um, 75% of static defence sites in the first 48 hours of the war, many of whom, many of those areas were, were empty. Um, they also make the point, Rishi makes the point, that war fighting needs a massive initial stockpile of, of weapons and personnel and then significant slack capacity, industrial capacity and and reserves elsewhere to, to, to keep going. And the final point is talking about drones or un, uncrewed aerial systems, to give them the, the title they, they use. Uh, and they are, they're now saying that they are essential across all areas, basically, at every, at every level and every area of military activity. Um, however... The, uh, a military commander must assume that a very high percentage, I mean, they put a figure of 90%, which I think is extremely high, um, of these drones are going to be lost because they are, they, they can't sort of, they can't manoeuvre really, they can't sort of get out of the way if you can see them, they can, which is why older systems such as the German Gepard, which just chucks a huge amount of, of lead into the sky very, very quickly, is able to uh, able to shoot these things down. So 
they are cheap and they are very capable, but you need them in huge numbers because you are going to lose huge numbers. So they're just some initial initial lessons from the first few months of um, of this phase of the war. I would recommend anyone to go and have a look at Roos's website to 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 read the whole paper. It's a biggie, but um, but it is it is worth it. And uh, as I said, they are going to update this. Um, well, they're going to continue to update it for as long as as long as need be. And the next period, sort of from from July up to Christmas, um, should be coming out in in the spring. But no, very good paper. Well, thank you very much, Dom, for running us through some of the key highlights that you've seen in the Rusi paper. Um, I think, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time together today. So, Darina and Alina, um, can I just come to you both just for your final thoughts? What will you be thinking of and considering over the next few days and weeks? And what would you want our listeners to be thinking about um, from everything you've, you've said to us today? Well, first of all, thanks a lot for inviting us today. What we're, uh, what we want every everyone to know is that we are living every day in waiting. Uh, our government says we shouldn't, but uh, well, lots of uh, thoughts about possible strikes and shellings. Well, Russian government promised that. We we believe them, uh, at least in some way. So that's what we feel, uh, what we live with currently. And uh, I just want everybody to remember that uh, Ukraine needs your assistance. Choose uh, somebody you want to help, and that would be amazing job you've done for this 2022. So like uh, it might be humanitarian, military, or whatever help you uh, would like to would like to provide. Well. You are here. You are not just a small person without any resources. All of you are big, and Ukraine just uh, proved that to be true, just because this country is winning uh, due to the small people um, works. Uh, thanks on that. And that's that's it from me. Yeah, thank you a lot for your invitation. And we are really glad to share with you our experience and, uh, unfortunately, our reality and uh, your support is really vital for us and we really appreciate it. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on The Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.